This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. As a glimmer of hope, the Reserve Bank might ease up on interest rate rises. After yesterday's 10th straight increase, taking the official rate to an 11-year high of 3.6%, the ABA has dropped its reference to needing multiple rises in coming months. A key business group, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, is calling on the central bank to hit pause, saying small businesses are struggling to keep up with the cost of loans on their assets as well as the cost of their operations. Annie Guest reports. On a Brisbane street full of houses under construction, 49-year-old Nenad Boyinovich has come out for fresh air. Painter, finishing the painting job, final touch-up. How long did it take you to do this two-storey house? Uh, it's about all together, inside and outside, about two months. While the housing industry is showing signs of slowing, with some businesses failing and construction declining, Nenad Voyinovich is working harder than ever to keep up with rising interest rates. It's mean I need to do much more longer hours, working Saturdays every single Saturday. How much have your repayments gone up? 1,300 per month, plus all the cost of materials and cost of the living, food, petrol, everything up. The Serbian-born migrant says it's also affecting his nine-year-old daughter and eight-year-old twin boys. And they pack me my kids to cut kids' sports and kids' entertainments. You've cut the kids' sports and entertainment? Yes. Not everything, but I cut some because I can't, after I must stay longer at work, so then I don't have a time to drive them to the sports. How have they taken that, having to miss their sports? Oh, they're taking really hard because I'm mostly now working, so they miss me a lot. And are you hearing similar things on the building side from other traders? Yes, from everyone. Other industries doing it tough include transport and food suppliers. Richard Forbes is from Independent Food Distributors, which represents 200 food warehouses and up to 2,000 truck operators. There's absolutely no doubt that uh, the impact of yet another interest uh, rate rise um, will certainly um, have an effect on food businesses within the supply chain who distribute food. On top of interest rate rises, he says food distributors are struggling with other high costs that are often being passed on to consumers. When you have operational costs such as um, wages and fuel and electricity rising to the extent that it has in the last three to six months, it's only natural that those price increases will flow through. The Food Supply Chain Alliance predicted a food increase this year of, of 6 to 8%. Um, and if interest rate rise, rises continue and if our input costs continue, then that, that prediction will come true. Richard Forbes from Independent Food Distributors ending Annie Guest's report. So what does the opposition think about the record run of interest rate rises? Susan Lee is the Deputy Liberal Leader and the Shadow Minister for Women, Industry and Small Business. Susan Lee, should the Reserve Bank pause interest rate rises? The Reserve Bank is doing its job, Sabra. The government is not. And as I looked at Anthony Albanese looking helpless and hopeless in Parliament yesterday, I actually said to him, 
you seem to have given up. He pointed to international factors. He sounded defeated and we still have no plan. Where was the confidence, the reassurance? Where was the leadership? I mean, a 25-point increase. Sabra, this means an extra $20,000 a year that a typical Australian family will now have to find on their mortgage. This is incredibly difficult for families right now. Are you suggesting the government spend more because won't that just add to the inflationary problem? This is, a, this is a Prime Minister who promised to bring down your power bills 97 times but uh, hasn't been able to mention the number $275 since and couldn't name the cash rate in April but thought he could promise you a cheaper mortgage in May. Uh, so I just want to point to not taking responsibility and not actually appreciating the problems that we're all facing. Uh, spending more? Of course spending has to be under control. Why would you have $45 billion in off-budget spending in funds that actually aren't going to do the job like the National Reconstruction Fund, $15 billion? It's going through the parliament now and I'm talking to the crossbench every day about why it's not going to answer the needs of our desperate manufacturers. So where's the plan on inflation? Uh, I mean, it's, it's simple economics. If the government doesn't get fiscal policy right, that makes inflation go up, that makes interest rates go up higher than they need to. Coalition MPs aren't supporting legislation to set up the machinery for the voice to parliament referendum. Is this a sign that the Liberals are going to take a formal no position on the voice itself? On this, we've raised three points and we've asked the government to address our concerns. Restore the pamphlet to outline the yes and no case and they've done that. But more importantly, establish official yes and no campaign organisations and fund those organisations appropriately. Now, Sabra, we're not asking for billions of dollars for each side, just some funding, as is convention with referendums in this country. This is just the administrative arrangements for both sides. To the nub of the question, is this a sign that the Liberals are going to take a formal no position on the voice itself? It's not a sign of that. We need the detail that we've continually asked for. And every day we hear more confusion from the government. So many different positions, particularly on whether the voice would have a role to the executive of government or to the parliament. Very early on when we saw the desperation in Alice Springs, um, one member of the government said the voice would fix that. Another member, the prime minister, said it probably wouldn't. And when I travel, as I do around the country, and I spent a week in Western Australia recently, um, people are actually asking me, how will it work in practice? And I'm unable to actually answer them. Um, The Greens, uh, new First Nations spokeswoman, Dorinda Cox, um, I note that she said she was surprised Labor didn't try to legislate the voice to give the model time to evolve and be tested, and then take take it to the Australian people with a referendum. Now, Um, that's just a sensible idea. So you're saying you'd like to see this legislated first and then taken to a referendum? I'm saying that's a sensible idea. I'm saying that's a position that uh, the Greens have put forward, recognising you don't get a blank cheque on the Constitution, that constitutional reform is really a big deal and that you have to get it right. Let's turn to superannuation. A fortnight ago, you were talking up a possible expansion of coalition policy to allow women to access their super to buy a house, saying it would help secure their financial independence. Have you convinced your colleagues to back that policy? 
If you heard Peter Dutton in the budget and reply last year, uh, we talked about backing in our first home owner superannuation scheme, which actually allows people to use their super to buy the asset that will appreciate the most in their lifetimes. When it comes to super cyber, we're focused on supporting the choices of women, not making their choices for them. Now, a sensible extension of this would be to allow women who need to buy their own home access to their super. At the moment, as it stands, you might, for example, be a 58-year-old woman who has had marriage breakup or domestic violence. Only when the situation is extremely desperate can you get your super. By then, it is too late. So, Sorry, to the number of that question, your colleagues, your colleagues supporting an expansion of that policy and new research actually points out today that women will retire with 136,000 less than men. Won't this idea just further diminish women's retirement balances and push up the cost of housing? If you buy your house early and you don't withdraw all of your super, you actually build your overall assets over your lifetime. So I have to be clear on this, Sabra. Um, I'm not asking women or suggesting that women should raid their super funds to fund their own crisis management in an emergency or to uh, not um, actually have super there for retirement. That statistic that you, you gave me then, that worries me. It worries me that women don't have enough superannuation till they retire. But, you know, today, is not the day to finalise a policy. Um, the statement so I made is women need financial independence. Your colleagues aren't on board yet? Oh, we will develop policy as we go forward, as we will in a, in a range of areas. And we've already developed policy for women. One was the uh, ability to let older women use their pension bonus to spend more hours in work if they choose and not be financially penalised. That's an important thing that Peter Dutton announced soon after we came into opposition. And when I travel through small businesses in Australia, they really respond positively to it. Susan Lee, thanks for talking to AM this morning. Pleasure, Sabra. And Susan Lee is the Deputy Liberal Leader. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is due to touch down in India later today, hoping to cement further defence and trade links with the South Asian nation as it strive to become, strives to become the next economic superpower. Mr Albanese will be looking at India's rapid technological growth and expanding digital economy when he arrives there to meet his counterpart Narendra Modi. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports. At a market in the centre of Ahmedabad in Gujarat in India's west, it takes a customer a couple of seconds to pay for a new pair of pants. She scans a QR code on her phone, types in the small price and the transaction is complete. India's revolutionary digital payment system has brought hundreds of millions of people into its economy. And the owner of this clothes shop, Shahbaz Khan, is seeing the benefits. It's positive for everyone. A small vendor who never had a bank account is now opening one, so he can use these digital payments. Everything here is digital now and my business is growing. The Modi government says initiatives like this digital payment system developed in India have made the country one of the fastest growing economies in the world and one which Western countries are now pursuing. The 
adoption of digital payment is a very big step for the betterment of our next generation. Anthony Albanese will become the first Australian Prime Minister to visit India in six years when he touches down later today. His first stop is this city of Ahmedabad. He'll be looking to cement further trade, energy and technology ties with India as he travels with a delegation of ministers and Australia's top CEOs. India is Australia's sixth largest trading partner, but there is so much potential for so much more. Mr Albanese will also establish Australian university campuses in India while building the two countries' defence links, which Richard Maud from the Asia Society Policy Institute says is seen by both countries as critical to getting stability in the Indo-Pacific. I think you're now seeing an inexorable long-term shift in India's worldview, uh, which is being driven by stronger economic connections to the West and, of course, by the challenge from China. But Mr Albanese will have to navigate some tricky areas where India and Australia diverge, like the Modi government's recent crackdown on the media and its ongoing ties to Russia. I think he'll understand that India is going to come at the war in Ukraine and its own relationship with Russia through an Indian national interest perspective. Australia might be disappointed with that, but it has to be realistic about it. On the streets of Ahmedabad, people like Bengal vendor Ram Krishna Rahor are excited to welcome the Prime Minister, hoping Australia can learn from India's progress. Australia can learn from India that it is important to adopt technology. It's India's growth. This is Avani Dias in Ahmedabad reporting for AM. The federal government's signature climate policy to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from the nation's biggest polluters has hit another hurdle. The Greens and the Coalition have teamed up in the Senate to demand the government release its modelling of how these big emitters will be able to use carbon credits under the proposed safeguard mechanism. Political reporter Nor Hader explains. The safeguard mechanism is Labor's centrepiece climate policy, but it's the Greens who'll determine its fate. Here's Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young. If the government believed that their policy is actually going to cut pollution, then one would think they would be forthcoming with this information. Under the proposed scheme, 215 of the nation's biggest polluters will be required to reduce their emissions by 4.9% each year to 2030. The Greens want to see the government's modelling of how those businesses would use carbon credits to meet their obligations as opposed to cutting emissions on site. Well, it's essential that we know what assumptions the government is making because all the evidence that's already out in the public shows that pollution is actually going to go up. The Greens and the Coalition teamed up in the Senate yesterday to pass a motion, which means the government's got until tomorrow afternoon to produce the modelling. The Climate Change Minister, Chris Bowen, has argued that it's not in the public interest to release it because it would reveal Cabinet deliberations and there are market sensitivities too. It adds pressure to the negotiations between the government and the Greens to get changes to the safeguard mechanism through the Parliament. But the Ministers told the ABC 
ABC's 7.30 program, he's optimistic. I believe that the parliament that was elected in May last year was elected with a mandate to reduce emissions, so therefore I'm confident of getting this policy through the parliament. And while he won't agree to the Greens' demand for a ban on new coal and gas projects, he says he's having good faith discussions with the minor party and other crossbenchers. It's 205 million tonnes of emissions that this policy reduces. John Connor is the chief executive of the Carbon Market Institute, an organisation which aims to promote best practice and integrity in carbon markets. Modelling, well, is it helpful? Possibly. Uh, well, could it be misleading? Probably. Is it definitive? No, because um, almost all modelling is wrong. But we think it would be helpful to be out there. In the meantime, he says, while the safeguard mechanism isn't perfect, it'll help end a decade of policy uncertainty. This is a very important policy to tackle emissions in the industrial sector, which is fast becoming the biggest polluting sector. And without um, this policy, we'll be forced into other chaotic and uh, other policy measures which uh, don't have the unusual industry support that we do have at, at the moment. That's John Connor from the Carbon Market Institute ending Nor Hadar's report. An Adelaide-based engineer is packing her bags, ready for, an, well, an enviable trip. She's about to become the first Australian trained as an astronaut under the Australian flag. It's a journey she hopes will also inspire more girls to take up a career in science. Isabel Masali reports. Catherine Bennell-Pegg has loved space and science for as long as she can remember. I grew up on Sydney's northern beaches under really bright, starry skies and became hooked on space as soon as I realised that each star could be a planet, a sun, even an entire galaxy. She first did an aeronautical space engineering degree and now the Director of Space Technology at the Australian Space Agency is embarking on a new challenge. I'm so excited. Um, I'm going to become the first Australian to be trained as an astronaut under the Australian flag. It's an absolute dream come true. While there have been other Australian-born astronauts, they've either trained or gone into space as citizens of other nations. Catherine Bennell-Pegg heads to Germany next month for a highly competitive 18-month program with the European Space Agency. And what it qualifies you to do is to be tapped on the shoulder for a mission to the International Space Station and start our pre-mission training. And you really start learning about how to be uh, an astronaut on the International Space Station. So you learn how to do spacewalks underwater, you do survival training, you learn how to... Uh, work together well in something the size of a, a caravan um, for months at a time. You learn about how to, um, you know, operate and and um, utilise science payloads. So on the space stations, there's medical research done, there's plant material research done. There's no guarantee she'll become an astronaut, but the training means she'll be ready. For me personally, um, the plan is for me to come back to Australia and bring those learnings home continue to work at the Australian Space Agency and the access that I will have been granted and the knowledge I will have learnt will be brought back to our sector to help us to um, realise all the opportunities that we can in this field. And of course, I hope one day to be tapped on the shoulder for a mission. That would be an absolute dream. And with women only making up 27% of the nation's science, technology, engineering and maths workforce, the 38-year-old also hopes to encourage more women and girls including her two young daughters. I hope that 
simply through the visibility of me being selected and undertaking the training, that that provides um, more opportunity for young girls and women to see themselves doing the same thing if that's something that they want to do. If you could only give one piece of advice to a girl listening to this who wants to have a career in science, what would it be? My advice would be to do what you're passionate about. There's not always role models for you to follow. You sometimes have to write your own story, but you absolutely should give it a crack if it's something that you'd really love to do and you'd love to to spend your life contributing to. Astronaut trainee Catherine Bennell-Pegg ending that report from Isabel Masali. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Elaine. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. An investigation has found that holes in the Perth Mint's compliance regime could have left it open to money laundering. Today, Four Corners reporter Angus Grigg on why that could end up costing taxpayers millions of dollars. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.